How many of you have a hard time saying no? All right, I saw else. Yeah, sometimes I saw a hand go up. This is a kind of like a get to know you moment, but it relates to the sermon. I'm just thinking about this because everybody tends to either have a hard time saying no or probably a hard time saying yes. Recently, a friend of mine told me that psychologists have done a lot of study and they've realized that human beings tend to exist on a spectrum of agreeableness. That's the psychological term for it, agreeableness. And agreeableness just means how inclined is a person to be sort of cooperative and kind and easy to get along with and to maintain sort of unity and connection with other people versus what psychologists call disagreeableness, which doesn't mean that a person's just trying to be mean and unkind and difficult. It just means that they're naturally a little more independent, a little more focused on some goal or some right direction or some choice, and they're not unwilling to just speak up and say that's wrong <laughs> or that's not what I'm going to do. So I ask you, as you think about this, how hard is it for you to say no? How hard is it for you to say yes? And it's not that I'm interested in you sort of conducting some self-psychology on yourself as we sit here this morning. It's just a way to get you thinking, well, some of you probably are in the middle saying, I mean, I say no pretty well, but it depends on what it is. I'm really good at saying no to this and like homework, for example, or no to my vegetables. But then other things are very easy to say yes to, like more cake or more cookies or beautiful weather or fun things or being in my bed longer every morning. There are some things that are easy to say yes to and some things not so much. What's God's perspective on all of this? How does God sift through this reality of saying no, saying yes, or it depends? Well, Nehemiah chapter 6 begins to help us understand this, and I invite you to read along with me in Nehemiah chapter 6. I'm going to read a few verses up through verse 4, and then I'll pause, and then we'll pick up the rest of the chapter as we go along. Verse 1 of Nehemiah 6. Now when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it. Although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, come, let us meet together at Chepharim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? They sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. God's enemies are still opposed to building this wall, and Nehemiah is still committed to building this wall. He says he has finished it, except for putting the doors and the gates. He is eager to do it. But there's a different kind of resistance in this chapter than everything we've heard in the previous chapters. This time... Tobiah has infiltrated the Jewish community through marriage. There are people who are Jews that have married to members of Tobiah's family. And now, given kind of the way that ancient Near Eastern culture works, those Jewish people who are who related by marriage have sort of social obligations or cultural customary requirements to honor Tobiah. So they're kind of relationally more loyal to him than they are to the interests of God as his plans for the Jewish people unfold. So then Sanballat and Tobiah focus their attacks on Nehemiah at this point. They start specifically targeting him 
And I think part of the reason they did that is they didn't succeed in frightening the Jewish people. In all these chapters, if you think back, they're building the wall. They've got the sword in one hand, the trowel in the other. They're really faithful, motivated people. And they don't give up. But the enemies keep opposing the wall. So they try to frighten Nehemiah. How does a kingdom traitor in a challenge like that stay strong? Well, they say no to everything but their great work. What does Nehemiah do? What's Nehemiah do? He's got this challenge I'm talking about. He says no. <laughs> his disagreeableness starts to go up a little bit. His meter of disagreeableness starts to go up. He says, no, I'm doing a great work. I can't come. Nehemiah said that he was aware these people are going to hurt me. So Nehemiah won't go. And neither should you, by the way. If you encounter people who are going to hurt you, you shouldn't go. And I'm not just saying that because of fear or common sense. Everybody would say, well, this was not worth coming this morning. I should be at Dunkin' Donuts if that's all I'm in here. This is more than just avoiding what frightens us or avoiding any kind of life that's contrary to common sense. God has a great work for you to do. Christ has chosen you as his first and only team. There's no junior varsity in the church. I love showing up on Sunday morning because I realize, wow, so many people in this church are using their gifts. There are people upstairs, downstairs, in the back, invisible, never seen because they're here on Tuesdays and whatnot, doing things so that we can be what? A group of people who worship God in a place at a time. And that's because people are serving. Christ has chosen us. All of us are making our contributions. If this were some kind of business or some kind of firm, like nobody's a junior partner. Everybody who names the name of Christ as Lord is a partner, fully partner from the beginning through faith in Christ. My first point this morning from Nehemiah is keep doing the work. Keep doing the work. Sounds so commonsensical, I recognize. But I say keep doing the work because one of the ways that Nehemiah handled this chapter is he kept building the wall. And it wouldn't be fair to preach God's word to you without just facing this utterly simple fact. Keep doing the work. <laughs> keep doing the work. Is somebody out there, you know, marrying into the Jewish people and starting to write threatening letters and getting sneaky and doing all this bad stuff? Yep, absolutely. And what does Nehemiah do? Keep doing the great work. Keep doing the great work. I heard the letters. I read them. I saw, you know, blah, blah, blah. I know about so-and-so's marriage. I know about so-and-so's family customs. I know other people have chosen to sort of betray us and sell us out. But I'm going to keep doing the work. Some of you, that's right. Some of you know my other job as a writer. I write for a few different publications. But one of my clients is a movement of Christian churches. It's called Converge. And it's this gathering of churches around America. And whenever they have a new church start, they like me to call up the pastor, ask him, how did he start the church? What's the town like where the church is? Why did he start a new church? And, and these kind of things. And then he and I write, he or she, I write a story together. And one of the neatest things for me is to always ask the question, how do you see God at work right now? What do you see God doing? Jesus promised I'll build my church. We see it amongst us. We see it in our lives. And I get to ask this pastor, how do you see God at work? You're building, he's, you know, you started this new church with a group of people, but he's building it. This church was a new church, right? 30 years ago, right? 28 years ago this month, actually. 28 years ago this month, this was a new church. So I asked these questions. How do you see God at work? And this pastor in Jacksonville, Florida, I was working with last week, he starts telling me about discovery Bible studies. I don't know if you've heard of these. I'll show you some examples in a minute. But he starts talking about discovery Bible studies. 
Some of these are apps on a phone. Some of these are websites. Sometimes it's a printed book. But a discovery Bible study is basically a really simple way for a group of people to read the Bible together. And it does need a person to start the discussion, which is why there's an app on the phone or printed guides, that kind of thing. But people can sit down together wherever, any day of the week, at any time, and start reading the Bible. And it comes with the questions to ask. Whatever you read comes with these basic questions to ask, to learn about God, to learn about how to live for him. And then at the end it says, what's one thing you're going to do right now? in the next seven days. Just what's this thing you're going to do? Whatever it is. Every person, of course, comes up with their own thing. They share that with the group. And the Jacksonville pastor is telling me all of this. And he says, tells me about a woman who came to Christ at his church and chose Christ as her Lord and started walking with Jesus in her life. And she finds out about these tools. So she just starts using it at the park. She just goes at the park with very little training, if any, just goes to a park near her house in Florida, starts doing this with groups of people that she know because she'd read the Bible. She felt like God was speaking to her and influencing her and helping her. So she's like, I'm going to go sit at the park and do this with other people and we can read the Bible together. I say this because you can be a great worker. You have tremendous potential. You, with the Holy Spirit, are precious. You are powerful. You can be used by God. And I, when I talked earlier about why it's not just like common sense to say saying no and, you know, just don't go places that are scary and don't let people hurt you. The reason I'm saying all these things is because you are precious for God's plans. He can use you in tremendous ways. In very rare cases, God would command his servants to go into a dangerous place or a dangerous situation. We see people in scripture who paid a painful price on some level. Their obedience included pain and suffering. But generally speaking, Christ is a good example. Christ had a clear command, go to the cross. But he was also the Messiah. It won't do me any good to repeat his actions. It won't do you any good, you know, to repeat his actions. That was a unique call upon his life because he was the Messiah. He didn't even do that, though, until his hour had come. Until he said, my hour has come, what he actually did is, be as innocent as doves and as shrewd as serpents, he said. He was just avoiding and managing any kind of conflict as long as he could to be as faithful to God as long as possible. You can do the same. You can say no to those who would hurt you. If something would take you out of God's work, out of the season and the work that God wants you to be doing, you can tell them, I'm doing a great work. I can't come. You can just repeat that phrase. They won't have a clue that it's Nehemiah probably, but you can just repeat that thing. I'm doing a great work. I can't come. A lot of times, Nehemiah, when I was reading and thinking about this and, and other experiences in life, I don't know about you, but a lot of times Nehemiah gets used as like a time management tool, like this, this, treated, this, this kind of like crash course in like project management or something. Like here's how to do something great with a big group of people and look at Nehemiah, he gets it done. They built this gigantic wall around the city, which is true if you want to take project management insights or something like that. I'm not a project manager, so I won't get too far into that. What strikes me so much about this is not so much about time management and reaching goals and being a good worker in that regard. It's not just about being more productive. God is saying, you're precious to me for my purposes, and I want to use you, and I won't get my work done without you. You're precious to God when you're in his work. Your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, you are the body of Christ. You're powerful by his spirit. How does a kingdom trader stay strong? They say no to everything but your great work. And honestly, if people get huffy about this, I don't know if huffy is like a Massachusetts word, but I heard like people just get a little bent out of shape. I don't know. You can throw out some things. What do, what do people here say? 
when they're just kind of like, not super angry, but they're just kind of ticked off, like, why are you doing what you're doing? I don't know what you call that. You can tell me later, maybe. All right, Huffy's good. I got the pass. Huffy's also the brand of a bicycle, so I didn't want anybody to get offended if that's like your favorite bicycle. People get a little huffy about this thing. You just keep building the wall. You just keep making self-defined statements. I am doing a great work. It's not about you, right? It's not an attack against somebody else to say, I'm doing a great work. It's not judgmental. It's not harsh, not pointing fingers, not raising our voices. We're just saying, I'm doing a great work. I can't come. How do you handle the people in your life who are getting you off God's track? I laugh because we've all got them, right? And it's tough. It's like, man, I was having a great day for like 12 minutes, (laughs) you know, until I saw that person. There are people in our life, they just, man, they just get us off our track, you know? They just... Oh, man, feels like a perpetual Monday with them. But we can, we can be strong. We can say no to everything but our great work. And a lot of times it's just simple language. I'm doing a great work. I can't come. I hear what you're saying, but I can't be part of that. My wife found this interesting version of Pinocchio's story. We've been reading it with the kids. And I'm telling you, and everybody thinks about Pinocchio, the big nose, right? Like his nose just gets longer because he's lying all the time. Well, this, this version includes the growing nose and the shrinking nose. He lies, grows, he tells the truth, it shrinks. That's kind of fun to watch for our kids. They laugh about that. But what's really bizarre too is he gets like deceived so much of the time. There's all these people like tricking him. I didn't realize that he's getting tricked all the time. He says he's walking to school, somebody sees him, and he like goes off like a fool and follows them into all kinds of bad situations. You know, It's this really interesting thing going on in his life. And it just, all this trickery, I'm just like, wow, that can happen. We just get off track, we just get off track, we just get off track. And yet Nehemiah never got off track. Five times, five times they wrote him these letters. Come meet with us in the plain. Come meet with us in Shepherdim. Come out, which is like 25 miles outside of Jerusalem. Come meet with us. Come meet with us. Nehemiah just says, I am doing a great work. I can't come. I'm doing a great work. I can't come. These people are saying, you know, come out 25 miles from the city. And 25 miles nowadays doesn't sound very far. I said I used to drive like 40 minutes or so to get here. It doesn't sound like a big deal, but keep in mind, they probably would have walked or ridden a horse. And so 25 miles walking, maybe he's in great shape and he does it in two days. He gets there, maybe he's in incredible shape, (laughs) and he gets there in one, I don't know, but he gets there in a day or two. He's got to meet with him. He's got to come back a day or two. We'll conservatively say three to five days he's gone. Well, he rebuilt the wall with the help of all the other workers. They did the whole thing in 52 days which means that five days is give or take nine or 10% of his time. He's getting a lot done, which means that two and a half days going out to Ono Plain and coming back is wasting a lot of time, not doing the Lord's work for five whole days. He's like, I don't have time for that. I'm not messing around with that. I don't have time for that. One time I got a phone call, and I don't know if any of you are, um, sometimes in, in, when, you, when you work, you, you know, think about working somewhere else. <laughs> you think about, uh, you know, might be working somewhere else and, Years ago, I was at home, and I really don't, I've never understood how this whole thing unfolded, but I get a phone call from the Ohio State University. I thought it was always Ohio State University, because I didn't grow up there, so I was like, yeah, Ohio State University, because every other university is just, you know, University of Massachusetts, right? We don't say the University of Massachusetts, but when the Ohio State University calls, they want you to say the. So they call, 
and I answer the phone, which this is kind of unusual because I had no connection, still have no connection to the Ohio State University. And they wanted to invite me to consider a program to get a master's degree in labor and human relations, which is something I have no family connection to, no interest in. At the time in my life, I was working as a journalist, and I was just beginning to think I appear to have some gifts or calling or something related to doing ministry in a full-time employee kind of way. So I'm figuring that out, and the Ohio State University calls to let me know that they have a great master's degree for me in labor and human relations, and they're willing to talk to me on the phone for an hour about what it means and why I'd move to Ohio and how I'd go to school and how much it cost and on and on and on and on and all this stuff. I listened and I prayed, tried to be open-minded, but in the end, I just thought, we don't even need to have more than one phone call for this. Because I've already begun realizing some of my life direction, and it's not labor and human relations. I wish, on the other hand, I'd just said, hey, I'm already doing a great work. It's nice that you cold called me from the Ohio State University, but I'm already doing a great work with my life. I'm, a master's degree, frankly, is not something I want. That can be as simple as that when we want to share people where we're going. By the way while we're on the subject of saying no to things. For our younger brothers and sisters, some of you went upstairs, some of you didn't, but I wanted to point out a few times when it's not a good idea to say I'm doing a great work, I can't come. My children aren't here today, but I will tell them this later so that we're just all fair. If your parents say take out the trash, you cannot say I'm doing a great work, I can't come. Now, if you are doing, if, if by some sheer woo, amazing moment, you're really doing a great work, then do a great work. But go get that trash in an hour, okay? <laughs> or two hours, as it might be. If your wife says, can you bring in the mail? Or the husband says, hey, we really need to balance the checkbook. We can't say I'm doing a great work. I can't come. I'm going to have to work out something. You can say, I'm doing a great work. Can I do that in an hour? Or I'm doing a great work. Can I do it tomorrow? Some kind of compromise is required. There is one time, though, when I want to say, that I'm pretty sure you should never, ever look at a human being and say, I'm doing a great work, I can't come. Do you know when it is? When you should never, ever say, I'm doing a great work, I can't come. It's with somebody who might be able to start following the Lord. I've got a neighbor, I have several, of course, just like you, but I've got a neighbor in particular who called me on the phone the other day, and he starts talking about leg pain. I am not a leg doctor. I'm also not an amateur leg doctor. <laughs> I, don't give, I don't give medical advice. And he calls and he wants to talk about leg pain. So we talk about leg pain for a short period of time, thankfully. You know, another time I was over in his yard, he's got a dead pine tree. We talk about when the pine tree comes down, how to cut it down, where to cut it, you know, all this stuff so it falls in the right place and doesn't land on the car or the driveway or the roof. I initiate and I stay in these kind of conversations because that relationship can go somewhere with somebody who may not be as close to Jesus as they want to be. And I'm hopeful, I don't know what's going to happen, but I say, hey, when you get ready to cut that tree down, call me. I know a little bit. I give more tree advice than I give medical advice. So I'm like, call me. We can figure this thing out together. We can start looking into how it goes, make some cuts, do these kind of things. It's a chance to build relationship. That's the great work, ultimately, that I want to find any avenue I can. So I'll always say yes to those kind of situations. You might be sitting here and saying, I'm not doing a great work. Like if the Ohio State University called me or my neighbor wants to cut down dead pine trees, like I'd just be saying yes all over the place. Well, 
you know, submit that to the Lord, spend some time in prayer about that, but also think about connecting with, with myself, one of the elders here. There may be a great work the Lord wants you to do. There may be some no's that he wants to build into your life because he'd like you to start saying no a lot more and doing a great work. And it's okay if you don't know what it is. There have been times in my life when I had no clue what it was. But the Lord can show you and see. For example, I mentioned these Discovery Bible studies. Three of them are right here. One of them is called Sent 6-7 Pursue. That's made by our college ministry. The next one on the right side of the screen is called Waha which is one I've heard about through my other job writing. And then there's the Discover app. You can check any one of those out. It doesn't sound like a great work, but it's an opportunity where if you have some people who might want to read the Bible for themselves, might want to have spiritual conversations, this can be an easy tool. You can have it on your phone. You can print it out. You can have it on a computer. Waha Discover app or Sent 6-7 Pursue. Sent 6-7 Pursue is the one the guy in Jacksonville was telling me about. But people can just answer simple questions. You get them on your phone. You get them on your computer. People talk about it once a week. See what happens. It could be a short-term mission trip. It could be volunteering for a local organization that transforms lives. There's opportunities to serve in this church on Sunday mornings, but also, as you've seen, there's other things happening several nights of the week because people have said, we want to be praying or we want to be gathering in homes. We want to be impacting teenagers what could your great work be? Our elders will be up here at the end of the service. I'll be up here. We, we can consider together what might the Lord want done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's read verses 5 through 9. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Gashmu, which is the same as Geshem, they spelled it differently, same, same word, same person, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king, according to these reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you a king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Then I sent a message to him saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. My second point this morning is just to expect lies and tell the truth. Four times, Nehemiah said, I'm doing a great work, I can't come. The fifth time, I think he must have gotten a little frustrated and felt like I've had enough. He says, nothing like this has been done. You're inventing this stuff in your own mind. You can just say you're a liar, <laughs> probably. The weird part to me is that most enemies are about as creative as Sanballat and Tobiah. They just keep repeating themselves over and over again. You'd think they'd get a little smarter and be like, hey, you know, the first letter didn't go so well. Maybe we should try something totally different. But this time, by the fifth time, they're like, well, let's just leave the letter open. <laughs> they'd previously been sealing it and closing it the fifth time. They get creative. We'll just leave the letter open. Part of that is they're trying to say someone has seen inside this and, and now the secret's out, that you're trying to make yourself king, the secret's out, you're kind of found out, Nehemiah, so let's take counsel together because, hey, we know what you're on to, and we don't know who opened this scroll, but somebody else has seen it, so things are getting out of hand, we better fix this, so we care about you, there's the imp sort of this implication. But in the meantime, they just think, well, we'll just keep sending them the same letter, 
We'll just keep doing it. And maybe his arm muscles will get so tired from unrolling the scroll and breaking the seal, and maybe his eyes will be so fatigued and his heart will be so irritated by reading the same thing that he'll just give in. But they don't know Nehemiah very well. He says, I'm bold. You're the liar. (laughs) I'm going to tell you the truth. You're lying. You're making this stuff up. None of it's true. And my third point comes straight from the, verse, from the end of verse 9. You might have noticed I didn't read the whole verse 9. The very last sentence in verse 9 says, But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah prays. What's the difference between boldness and arrogance? What's well, prayer? It's prayer. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. How do you stay strong in these kind of challenges? Prayer. See, arrogant people find power in themselves, their money, their power, their accomplishments, how good they are, what great things they've done in the athletic field or the business world or wherever. It's easy to become arrogant because we look at ourselves, but Nehemiah is different because he looks at God. He's rooted his confidence in God, and it makes him bold. He is surrendered to God. I imagine Sanballat and Tobiah starting to get really twisted up at this point. Like, they're not huffy anymore. They're like double huffy. You know, they're past like whatever comes with huff. They're just like really getting sick and tired of it at this point. And if there was like an objective third person kind of watching, I think they'd be like, what are you guys so worked up about? I mean, you knew Nehemiah's doing a great work. Like, he didn't leave his job as cupbearer to come all the way to Jerusalem to sit around in a plane and have like conversations with you while you threaten him and just write things on paper. Like you know who Nehemiah is. He's a wall builder, right? Not a guy that's like, hey, let's just read together and have meetings. That sounds good. Yeah, I'll leave the job as the cupbearer. We'll just sit around in a circle and trade scrolls. Maybe we'll get paper cuts, you know, and we'll have to like complain about that or something. That's not Nehemiah. I imagine these people getting so frustrated, but he's just being who he is. I'm a doer. I came here to do something. I'm working for God. How does the kingdom trader stay strong? He says no to everything but his great work. And look how seriously Nehemiah took prayer. You read through the book. You've heard five chapters so far. He was always praying. He was always praying. He's before the king in Babylon. He gets asked, why do you look so sad? He prays. He's right here. He loves these like one sentence prayers. God strengthen my hands. All right, I'm back to work. <laughs> I've prayed. God strengthen my hands. God help me. I'm going to do something. Here we go. He's praying all the time. It's one of the things we're striving for as a church. It's why we have a Wednesday night prayer gathering. It's why we have prayer at our other events, family altars on Monday nights. Prayer is a bridge from hearing lies to practicing boldness with enemies. Let's read verses 10 through 19. Nehemiah says in verse 10, When I entered the house of Shehemiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together. The enemies still haven't got the point. Let's talk in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. 
Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month, Elul, in 52 days. When all our enemies heard it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehoanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence, and reported my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Some enemies just aren't going to learn Two kinds of people in this passage, those who write letters and those who don't. In verse 12, he, Nehemiah names a false prophet and prophetess who work for Tobiah. But they don't seem to concern Nehemiah. He doesn't seem to care, and I just wonder why. I mean, these people, are like, they're talking about killing him. Like, that's not something most of us deal with. Like, they're, gonna, they're, they're saying, we're going to kill you. That sort of thing is a stressful, sort of disruptive experience for many of us if we were to hear it. And Nehemiah's like, nah. Well, in verse 12, Nehemiah says, Then I perceived that God had not sent him. This is one of those verses where, like, human to human, I just want to sit down with Nehemiah and be like, All right, tell me what that means. Like, then I perceived that surely God had not sent him? Like, like what do you mean you perceived? I want to, like, dive into that, you know? I want to understand, like, Nehemiah, make talk, talk to me here, Nehemiah. Talk to me, you know? I looked it up, I studied it a lot, I read around, other smart people tried to figure out, like, what's going on here? Different versions of the Bible, I don't know what versions you've got, but different ones use different words. They'll say, realized, it became clear to Nehemiah. Nehemiah discerned that God had not sent him. Here's what I think happened, the best I can tell. God helps his servants to recognize in the moment what's going on. That's what I think, that's the best guess I can make. We don't know exactly how, I don't know exactly how, but something tipped Nehemiah off. This guy's evil. I don't know what he's done or who he's married to. Or he, Nehemiah doesn't seem to know everything. But in the moment, he realized this guy's evil. This guy's a problem for me. Something's not right. Now, we don't know as a human, knowing what I have heard now and things like that, maybe Shemaiah was like blinking too fast or sort of fidgeting, you know, like when people lie or they're kind of keeping a secret or they're doing something bad, you know, they sort of fidget or they shift too much or, you're like, or you know, something weird. It's just, you're just like, that's just, that's just off. Like he's not behaving like himself. She's not acting normal right now. This is just weird. Well, I don't know. Maybe Nehemiah saw those kind of things coming from this guy. But Charles Swindle said, Something inside a sixth sense was sort of tipping Nehemiah off, giving him some kind of discernment. Bottom line, God helps his servants dodge danger. There's something God can do for you as you find yourself in these situations where you end up with discernment. Because the Holy Spirit's more than competent to know the heart of the human beings around you and help you address that issue. So you can do your great work. And you can be attentive and pick up on some of this stuff, but you don't have to be afraid because the Spirit's ready to say, don't trust that person. Don't go where they tell you. Don't listen to them. Call them out. God can help you perceive enemies just like Nehemiah did. My final point today comes right out of that. Practice boldness. It's incredible how bold Nehemiah was. They said, Nehemiah, we're going to kill you. 
And he said, I'm going to build a wall. And they said, Nehemiah, if you keep this up, we're going to kill you. And he said, I'm building a wall. And they said, if you don't stop, we're going to tell the king of Babylon. And he said, I'm building a wall. And they said, we know you're trying to make yourself king. And he said, I'm building a wall. Over and over and over again, he says, I'm building a wall. And they say, we're coming to get you. You should hide in the temple, even though only priests are allowed to be there. And he says, I'm building a wall. If you want to come get me, come get me out on the wall. I'll be out there with the people with swords and with trowels. Come out there in front of them and do what you say you're going to do, because I'll be out there building a wall. And they say, let's have a little chat with Sanballat and Tobiah. We're married in. We're part of you. We're in relationship with each other. And he says, I'm building a wall. I don't have time for this. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to get worried. I'm not going to stop praying. I'm not going to stop building. I came here to build a wall. And they said, we're going to kill you. We're going to write the king. We're going to prophesy about you. We're going to send people to lie to you. We're going to send Jews to tell you secrets and sneaky stuff. And we're going to have little letters that have been opened by somebody. And he says, I'm building a wall. I don't have time for that. Charles Swindoll, same person I mentioned before, he wrote a good book called Hand Me Another Brick. And if you really want to dive into a lot of Nehemiah Charles Swindle's book, Hand Me Another Brick, he talks about saying no. And Charles Swindle says, one of the marks of maturity is the ability to say no without explanation. And that's tough for me because I'm not a natural no person. But Chuck Swindoll says, one of the marks of maturity is saying no without explanation. There was a prime minister of the United Kingdom at least 100 years ago, Benjamin Disraeli. I don't know a whole lot about him as a leader, but he was the prime minister of the United Kingdom. And he once said, never complain, never explain. That was his thing as he went through leadership and service. He said, never complain, never explain. This week I was talking to, I'm sorry, not this week, but uh, this week I read a quote from a pastor, same situation with these churches that uh, are around. And this was a pastor in Texas, Rock Creek, Rock Creek Church. Brad Wilkerson's his name. Someone else shared this quote from him. The breakthrough you are wanting, one behind, there we go. The breakthrough you are wanting is predicated on the hard decision you are unwilling to make. The breakthrough you are wanting is predicated on the hard decision you're unwilling to make. Nehemiah is not the only one who got this right. He was willing to make a hard decision and say, no. I'm doing a great work. I can't come. I'm not going to the plane. I'm not responding to your mail. I'm not going to write letters. I'm not going to waste time with your lies. I'm doing a great work. But he's not the best one to mention in this regard. The best one to mention is the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Lord Jesus Christ got to a point in his life where he said, I've set my face like flint. I'm going to Jerusalem. He knew he meant the cross. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. And people around him could have said, Jesus, if you do it, they will kill you. And he said, my hour has come. And they said, Jesus, if you do this, your mother's going to have no one with her to care for her. I'm going to Jerusalem. Jesus, if you do this, they will beat you. He says, my hour has come. Jesus, if you do this, they're going to rip your clothes off and humiliate you. They are not going to worship you. And Jesus said, my hour has come. I'm going to Jerusalem. And they said, Jesus, if you do this, they will nail you to a tree. They will put thorns on your head. They will cast lots for your clothing. They will shame you in the most deep 
and wide ways possible. They've got it down to a science, Jesus. They're ready to ruin you. And he said, my hour has come. I will go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be obedient anyway. And it's because of what Christ did, and it's because of Christ's actions and his love, that I can repeat to you what the Apostle Paul said. Christ died so that all those who live might not live for themselves, but for him who gave himself up for them. 2 Corinthians 5.15 is where this comes from. You can read the full chapter and get the flow. But 2 Corinthians says, we have a ministry of reconciliation, reconciling people with God through the gospel as though God were making an appeal through us. He has made us ambassadors of Christ, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And I don't know this morning if you're a long-time Christian, a short-time Christian, an unsure kind of mixed place, not yet a Christian. I don't know. But Jesus died for you that you might respond to him and say, I'll follow Nehemiah's example. I'll be a Christ follower. I'll be somebody who builds what God wants built. And I'll let you know up front, there's voices. You've got your own Sanballats and Tobias. They probably have American names. But you've got your own Sanballats and Tobias on the sidelines, ready to be intermingled into your world. And they'll say, if you do that, we'll quit talking to you. And you have to say, I'm building a wall. I'm doing a great work. And they'll say, if you do that this Thanksgiving, it's going to be like we're not into that. And you'll have to say, hey, I'm doing a great work. I can't stop it. And they'll say, we're not doing Christmas like those, you know, we're not, we're not doing that thing where like you talk about the baby Jesus and you celebrate the one who came for us. It's going to be a little uncomfortable, but there's a way to say, I'm doing a great work. I can't not do what I'm doing. I can't not believe what I'm believing. I can't not speak what I'm speaking. You can say, I'll, I'll build a wall. I'll keep going. I'm doing a great work. I can't stop. I can't get off this track. How does a kingdom trader stay strong, they keep saying no to everything but their great work. One of our elders, Jason, is going to share with us an encouragement as we go. I'm going to close our time in prayer and ask the Lord to show you what your great work is. All right, we'll hold off. We're going to close in prayer. We're going to listen to the Holy Spirit. We're going to close in prayer. It's an opportunity to remember the Lord who gave himself for you, though. And to let him clarify the great work you have for us all. Let's pray together. Father, we're already in a spirit of prayer. And we lift our hearts up to you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We recognize that there wasn't a whole lot different. There isn't a whole lot different between Nehemiah and us. He was working somewhere. He was living somewhere. Things were going the way they were going. And then you got involved and said, I have something else for you to do. And we're open to that before you. I pray for these people around me. Some of them are already doing it. Some of them are aware of the opposition and the criticism or the other things. They've got people trying to frighten them, or they've got the evil one trying to frighten them. Others of us need clarity, need direction from you about a transition or a change that we would make, a new thing we would start doing for you. Whatever it is, I pray that you'd be faithful I pray that you would help us along just like you helped Nehemiah along so that when our moment comes, we can say, this is the moment, this is the hour, this is the opportunity I prayed for, and I'm going to do it. And I'm not going to be distracted or frightened or swayed. I'm not going to go do something else. May we handle it with faith and with devotion. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.